Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing contingency and cosmological arguments. Arguments from contingency are widely considered to be among the strongest offered in defense of God. This might come as a surprise to some, but contingency arguments, in my experience, have the greatest conversion power. They're more potent and compelling, not only to believers but also to atheists and agnostics, than many other arguments. Further, the results of the 2020 Phil Papers survey have cosmological arguments ranked as the strongest family of arguments for theism. So why don't I spend more time talking about them? And for those who might be unsure what those are, here's a helpful summary from Wikipedia. Quote, A cosmological argument in natural theology is an argument which claims that the existence of God can be inferred from facts concerning causation, explanation, change, motion, contingency, dependency, or finitude with respect to the universe, or some totality of objects. End quote. For many people, Graham Oppie is responsible for popularizing the idea that considerations raised by cosmological and contingency arguments do not favor theism over naturalism. And here are two representative passages that dramatically changed how I viewed the debate. Quote, Whatever range of options is open to the theist to explain the existence of God, exactly the same range of options is open to the naturalist to explain the existence of the universe. If it's open to the theist to say that God exists of necessity, then it's open to the naturalist to say that the universe exists of necessity. If it's open to the theist to say that God's existence involves an infinite regress, then it's open to the naturalist to say the existence of the universe involves an infinite regress. If it's open to the theist to say the existence of God has no explanation, then it is open to the naturalist to say that the existence of the universe has no explanation. Insofar as we are interested in explaining the existence of the universe, the postulation of a God who creates the universe does not bring with it any explanatory advantage. And here's a quote from Oppie's book, The Best Argument Against God. Given that naturalists and theists have exactly the same options when it comes to explaining why there is causal stuff rather than complete absence of causal stuff, each can hold that it is necessary that there is causal stuff, and each can hold that it is a brute fact that there is causal stuff, considerations about global causal structure do not count in favor of one view rather than the other. The conclusion that we have reached here may be surprising to some readers. After all, cosmological arguments are widely recognized to be among the strongest standard arguments for the existence of God, and yet, cosmological arguments typically appeal to considerations about global causal structure. End quote. Crucially, there is no incompatibility between naturalism and metaphysical necessity. This necessary being could be God, but it might be something that we wouldn't recognize as godlike. It's equally open to theists and naturalists to affirm, to borrow Oppie's way of putting it, that every possible world shares an initial part with the actual world, and that it was impossible for there to be a complete absence of causal stuff. 
there couldn't have been nothing rather than something. In other words, there is something because there had to be something. Atheists who ask the question, who created God, are often mocked by theists and other atheists alike. Asking the question, but to what does God owe his explanation, is just a bad question. God, according to many believers, is a necessary being. Furthermore, God is commonly taken to be, or be intimately involved in, the first cause. So asking why he exists is to misunderstand that we've arrived at the end of the causal chain. We've reached the universal common ancestor of causal history. As Oppie rightly points out, there's no reason the common ancestor of causal history must be a god. There may very well be a metaphysical necessity, but it's simply untrue that this all men call God. In other words, we could happily go along with theists as they advance this line of reasoning. We could agree that contingent things depend ultimately on a necessary foundation, but take the nature of this foundational reality to be quite different from a theistic God. How can a contingency argument be an argument against naturalism if naturalists can go along with everything being said? And as an aside, theists don't need to think of God as a metaphysical necessity. Some do, some don't. And the same holds true for atheists in the natural order. Oppie's original point is the main reason I don't spend much time worrying about this kind of argument. Whatever range of options is open to the theist to explain the existence of God, exactly the same range of options is open to the naturalist to explain the existence of nature. There's no reason a necessary foundation couldn't be a part of the natural order. In fact, Api goes on the offensive and argues that the naturalist has a more parsimonious theory than the theist, and we should thus prefer the naturalistic option here. All I'm trying to establish is that whatever range of options is open to the theist to explain existence, exactly the same range of options is open to the naturalist as well. A closely interrelated reason, which will be familiar to many, is found in the critique of stage two arguments. William Rowe divided the argument from contingency into two stages. Stage one, the existence of an independent foundation. Stage two, the nature of that foundation. After it's established that there is or is likely a necessary being, theists need to argue further that this necessary being is God. Atheists and naturalists can accept the conclusion of stage one. Again, how can this constitute an argument against naturalism if naturalists can go along with you in all that's being argued? So, contingent things may depend ultimately on a necessary foundation. But necessary foundation is ambiguous. What is this necessary foundation like? Stage two is where we get to God, and it's much weaker than stage one. Say we've leveled a successful argument from contingency and established that there must be a foundation of reality that exists of necessity. So we've established the existence of God? No, not quite. Let's say we further establish that this necessary foundation must be conscious. So we've established the existence of God. Well, no, no again. Say we've demonstrated that this necessary conscious foundation is uncaused beginningless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. So finally, we've established the existence of God? 
Even though naturalists typically do not go down the path with theists this far, we certainly could. Philip Goff, responding to theologian Joanna Liedenhag, explains, quote, If we accept the principle of sufficient reason, we have to postulate a self-explainer. And I think there probably is a self-explainer. However, I don't see why the self-explainer can't be the universe itself. Liedenhag raises three objections to this view, which I lay out below together with my responses. Objection 1. The universe began to exist, and hence doesn't exist necessarily. Response. It's true that the temporal phase of the universe began to exist, but it could be that, in the absence of time, the universe exists in a timeless form. Liedenhag may object that we have no reason to think the universe could exist in a timeless form. I would respond, the PSR entails that we must choose between two hypotheses, a self-explaining universe, which can exist in a timeless form, or a supernatural self-explainer, distinct from the physical universe. The former is more parsimonious, and therefore the one we ought to go for. Objection 2. If the universe exists necessarily, nothing is contingent. Response. I don't think that's quite right. If there is quantum indeterminacy, then this will introduce an element of contingency, and the necessity of the universe's existence is consistent with the emergence of libertarian free will. Objection 3. It's conceivable that the universe doesn't exist. Response. It's also conceivable that God doesn't exist, or at least it's conceivable that an all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good being doesn't exist. Of course, some define God as existing necessarily, but I could equally stipulate that the universe exists necessarily. Why not take the more parsimonious option of ascribing that nature to the universe itself? End quote. The point is not that you must accept a necessary foundation, or panpsychism, or anything we've been exploring. You don't have to believe that the natural order exists of necessity, or that there's an independent, necessary foundation of reality that has any of the attributes that we've discussed. The point is that you could. How can an argument of this sort be an argument against naturalism if a naturalist could agree with everything established by the argument? Given the length of this episode, hopefully you were not under the impression that I'm purporting to give a comprehensive analysis of contingency and cosmological arguments. I also haven't addressed common objections to this line of reasoning, for example, arbitrary limits, or accounting for how certain events in God's creation correspond to natural events, or how something may still constitute evidence against a particular view, even if it's compatible with that view. Those and many others are points well worth discussing. I only felt compelled to make this brief episode because I've hardly made reference to these sorts of arguments in the entire course of this podcast, and I thought I should explain why. Something I really like about philosophy is that it can give you the words to clearly express something that you felt but couldn't really figure out how to say. I used to get very frustrated with apologists who would act as if why is there something rather than nothing was some kind of irresolvable problem but only for atheists. Oppie and Rowe's work helped me explain why. That's all I have for you today. So I have a new patron to induct into the illustrious Patron Hall of Fame. So let me thank my Patron Hall of Famers, Phil Stilwell, 
Grim Frenzy, Dehydrated Myself Until Aaron Made Me Moist, Richard Crossan, Rory B. Murkowski, Henry W. Bartholomew, and John Buck. Welcome to the Patron Hall of Fame. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter, where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to be tortured for eternity, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green and I'll talk to you next time.